baptism. There's probably no other topic throughout the quote-unquote Christian world, throughout the denominational world that has been debated more than what baptism has, more divisions that it's caused than anything else. You know, are, are you saved before baptism or are you saved after baptism? Is baptism necessary to obtain your salvation and go to heaven? You know, when I was putting together the sermon for this morning, I had an idea in my mind of how I wanted this to go and talking about baptism's necessity for salvation. But then I got thinking, you know, I've, I've heard sermons all my life about that. I can get online and find tons of sermons. I can get on Pippin's website and, and have sermons that Randy's preached in the past about that. And, and I didn't want to recreate the same sermon again. And so I've decided to take a little bit of a different, different approach with this this morning. I actually want to look at what I'd like to call the baptism debate. And what I'm going to get into in this is I want to look at different arguments that are made by people throughout the denominational world. What arguments are presented to people in the church that says, look, this is reasons why baptism is not necessary. And then I want us to take those arguments and I want us to look at the Bible. What does the Bible say? You know, when you're trying to talk to somebody about what the Bible tells them, and if they present an argument or something like this to you, if you just kind of brush it off as nonsense, there's a good chance they're not going to listen to you anymore. If they know that you're not going to take what they're saying seriously, you might as well pack up and go home. So as we look at this study this morning, I want us everybody to keep an open mind. I want everybody to get their Bibles out. We're going to be turning the passages together. I want us to look with an unbiased opinion about what the scriptures really say about these arguments. I've got nine arguments I want us to go through this morning, and I know that's quite a few, so I'm going to go fairly quickly through them. The first five we can go through fairly quick. There's not a whole lot of information that I think needs to be shared in order to truly answer what the argument says. The last four are ones that are probably a little more popular, that we've probably heard more often, and so we may spend a little bit more time on it. But like I said, I, I encourage you to go ahead and get your Bibles out. Take notes if you want to. I've learned a lot in putting this together that I really think will help me in discussions with people in the future. And so take notes. Some of these things might help you as well. So the first argument I want us to look at, somebody may say, you know what? The apostles were never baptized. Why do I have to be baptized? You know, there's an underlying assumption in that argument right there that we really have to look at, and that's really what we need to go to the scriptures for. That assumption being that everything that occurred in Jesus' life and everything that occurred in the life of the apostles is recorded in the Bible. Is that true? Just because the Bible may not say that somebody was baptized, is it true that they weren't? Turn with me to John chapter 21, verse 25. The very last verse in the book of John. In several of these slides, you'll see I've, I've tried to put the verses on the slides if I had room for it. But still, I encourage you to go ahead and get your Bibles out because that won't always be the case. John chapter 21, verse 25. And it says, And there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one... I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. The simple fact is, just because something is not recorded in the scriptures doesn't mean it didn't happen. And so when somebody says, well, the apostles never got baptized, I never saw where that happened, therefore I don't need to be baptized. That's an invalid argument because the, the underlying assumption is just wrong. So, not going to spend a whole lot more time on that one. Let's go on to the next one. Argument number two. And I've heard people say this to me before. 
So you know what? The baptism that we read about in the Bible, that baptism is not a physical baptism. It's a spiritual baptism that we go through. And basically what they're meaning is there's no physical water that's necessary to be involved in the process. There is no physical immersion in the water. A lot of times people will use passages such as Acts chapter 1. So just flip over a page in your Bible. Acts chapter 1, beginning reading in verse 4. It says, And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so people point to passages like that and say, Look, baptism with water ended with John the Baptist. What we go through today, yes, there is baptism, but it's not physical, it's spiritual. There's an entire sermon could be built around this. There are passages upon passages that talk about water baptism. Just to point out a few, in Acts chapter 8, when Philip was talking to the Ethiopian eunuch, if water was not necessary in the process, why did they go down into the water? That just seems like such an inconvenience to go down and get soaking wet if, you weren't, if it wasn't necessary. And we, we read in 1 Peter chapter 3 where it talks about Noah and his family being saved by water and that that now being an antitype to the baptism that now saves us. And so over and over the Bible talks about water physically being used in the process. And so the argument that the baptism that Jesus preached, that the apostles preached, is just a spiritual baptism, it, it simply doesn't have a leg to stand on when you go back and look at what the Scriptures truly say. So let's go on to the next one. Argument number three. Some people say, all right, let's say I go through the process of being baptized as you say I need to be. And I have to physically have somebody baptize me. Basically, aren't you saying then that the blood of Jesus by itself is not strong enough to cleanse me that I now have to get somebody else involved in the process? In other words, the baptizer, the person performing the baptism. Is that not saying that Jesus' sacrifice wasn't strong enough by itself? Well, let's look at that. I mean, is, is that a legitimate argument? Turn with me over to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, and let's read verse 14 together. It says, How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And so according to the Bible, according to Romans chapter 10... Somebody has to be involved in the process in order to hear and believe. So why is it okay for someone to have to be involved in that part of the process, but nobody's allowed to be involved in the process of baptism? It simply doesn't make sense. It's contradictory according to what the Bible says. You know, I, I tried to think of, of anyone in the Bible, any examples we had of maybe somebody that the Bible talks through their salvation of how they were saved, without anybody being involved. The closest I could come to was Paul on the road to Damascus. Yes, he had people with him, but I, I will admit they probably were not involved in that, that interaction between him and Jesus. But the question we have to ask ourselves is, was Paul saved after that interaction with Jesus on the road to Damascus? If he was, then okay, this argument's valid. But if he wasn't, then it's not. I'm going to say he was not. Paul immediately had to continue on to Damascus where he met Ananias there, and Ananias baptized him. 
So now you have Ananias is involved in the process of baptizing Paul. The simple fact is there is no example in the Bible of anyone obtaining their salvation without another person being present and being involved in that process. Whatever we want to, whatever our logic wants to tell us that that doesn't make sense. It shouldn't be that way. It's irrelevant what we think about it. The simple fact is the Bible says what it says, and we are to be following that. All right, let's go on to the next one. Argument number four. Everybody turn to Romans chapter 10 with me. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. A lot of people will point at this passage and say, See, this passage tells us exactly what we need to do to be saved. Baptism is not mentioned anywhere in this passage. Therefore, according to what I read, baptism is not required for salvation. Okay, let's look at Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. It says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Okay, it's true. Baptism is not mentioned there. But the question is, is this the only passage that gives us anything in relation to what's required for salvation? According to this, I mean, it's obvious to see that confession and faith are both required. But is that it? Someone presents this argument to you. I would challenge them to turn over to Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13 and verse 5, it says, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Well, repentance wasn't mentioned over in Romans chapter 10. So can we just ignore Luke chapter 13 and verse 5 and only look at Romans 10, 9 and 10? Or can we ignore Romans 10 and look only at Luke chapter 13? I'm not sure there's anybody throughout the, the denominational world that would say, Repentance, confession, and faith are all three necessary in order to obtain salvation. And so most people are okay with taking those two verses and putting together. But now when you go over and have a verse that talks about baptism being necessary for salvation, now they start to have a problem with that. They say, no, no, you can't include that in there. It's, it's an invalid argument. It's invalid assumptions that are being made. And so you can't take one verse, pull it out, and say that's all that is needed. You know, we're told in Psalm... Chapter 119 and verse, verse 160, that the entirety of your word is truth. It is not one passage. It is the entire, complete, whole set of God's word that gives us what we need for salvation. So just because one verse doesn't include baptism doesn't mean baptism is not necessary. All right, let's go on to the fifth argument. Argument number five. A lot of people say, all right, you people in the Church of Christ, you're always saying that in order to rightly divide God's Word, you've got to know who is talking and who they're talking to. Okay, let's do that. Acts 2.38. That, that verse comes from a sermon that is being preached to the Jews. We're not Jews today, therefore Acts 2.38 does not apply to us. Okay? I know we all know what Acts 2.38 says, but let's go on and turn over to it. Acts 2.38, it says, Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's true. This was part of a sermon that was preached by Peter to the Jews. But what this argument has, again, is an underlying assumption. 
that there is a different set of criteria for Jews than there is for Gentiles when it comes to salvation. That's what we have to go to the Bible and look at. It's just because it's preached to the Jews, does that mean it doesn't apply to me because I'm not a Jew? Peter was given the gospel to go to the Jews, to go to the circumcised. And we're told that in the Bible, and we're going to look at that too. Paul is the one that the Scripture says that the gospel was given to him to go to the Gentiles. And so if someone wants to present that argument to them, they'll say, okay, let's go find something that Paul said then that goes to the Gentiles, and let's see what it says. Turn with me over to Galatians. Galatians chapter 2. Let's begin reading in verse 6. And again, this is Paul speaking here. It says, But from those who seem to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man. For those who seemed to be something added nothing to me. But on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter. So that's the gospel to the Gentiles was to Paul. The gospel for the Jews was to Peter. Listen to verse 8. It says, For he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised, or to the Jews, also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Paul confirms here in verse 8 that what worked through Peter to give him the gospel, that exact same thing worked through him to give the gospel to go to the Gentiles. They were not given two different gospels. They were given the exact same thing. Paul and, pre and Peter preached the exact same thing. There is one hope. There is one faith. There is no such thing as different sets of criteria for Jews and Gentiles. And so when someone wants to present the argument that says, well, Acts 2.38 doesn't apply to us today in the church because that was preached to the Jews... The Bible tells us that anything that Peter preached to the Jews also applies to the Gentiles. And vice versa, anything that, that Paul preached to the Gentiles also applies to the Jews today. So again, when you go to the Scriptures with an unbiased approach, this argument simply doesn't hold up. Okay, like I said, the first five arguments I want to go through fairly quickly. I didn't think there was a whole lot that we needed to spend time on. The next four are ones that we've probably all heard before. They're ones that... If we haven't heard it from someone else, it's maybe been given to us specifically as an argument. And so I want to spend a little bit more time on those. Let's look at argument number six now. A lot of people say, okay, let's say I go by your quote-unquote plan of salvation that you say the Bible says. I've heard the word. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I repent of my sins. I confess before men that Jesus is the Son of God. I now want to be baptized. I'm at my house. So I get in my car and I start driving to the church building so I can get access to the baptistry. On the way to the church, I have a car crash and I die. Are you telling me I'm going to hell? I've heard that argument a lot from people. There's a reason this is a very popular argument. It's because this, catch, this question is a catch-22. There is no answer you can give to this question that will not make you look like a bad person. It is designed to pull an emotional response out of you that takes you away from reading Scripture and quoting the Bible, and it wants you to use your emotion and your logic to say what somebody's salvation is going to be or is not going to be. You know, if you answer this question that, yes, you're going to hell, 
the immediate reaction you're probably going to get is one of ridicule and criticizing you. Is like, are you telling me that I am trying to follow the Bible the way that you say it's supposed to be done and I can't even get to heaven when I'm trying to? But if you say no, that you're not going to hell, or, and this is the response that I've heard from most people, even within the church, is you say, that's up to God. That is God's decision at that point. I can't answer that question. Basically, what we're doing at that point is we're leaving the possibility that there is a way to get into heaven without baptism. And if you give that answer, anything you try to say to this person from here on in relation to baptism being necessary for salvation, they're probably not going to listen to you. Simply because you just told them there's a possibility on this hypothetical situation that I could possibly get into heaven without baptism. How can you tell me baptism's required then? So how do you answer a question like this? The very first thing I would do if somebody asks you this question is, is first, turn the question around. May, I mean, it, it's a catch-22 either way. Ask them and say, okay, I haven't, I've heard the gospel before, but I haven't really heard enough of it that I really believe that Jesus is the Son of God. But I was going to go to church this morning, and I was going to go hear the gospel preached, and I was going to hear something that was going to make me believe. But on my way to church, I die in a car wreck and I never get there. If I had lived for an hour longer, I would have heard that, gospel, that sermon preached. It would have told me what I needed to to believe and I would, have been, I would have believed and according to you, I would have been saved at that point. Am I going to heaven or hell? It's the exact same scenario. It's just instead of getting to the belief part or getting to the baptism part. Okay, If, if that response isn't good enough for somebody, the only thing you can do you have to let the Bible speak for itself. You turn to passages that tells that baptism is necessary for salvation, and you let them read the word for themselves. Turn with me over to 1 Peter chapter 3. And, and this is the reason that I wanted this scripture to be read uh, before the sermon. But let's look at this again. 1 Peter chapter 3. Let's begin reading in verse 13. And it says, And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better, if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. If you give the answer to them that baptism is required for salvation, if you have not been baptized, you will not go to heaven. You show them passages like Romans 6 that, look, this is the Bible saying this. It's not me saying it. Again, the response you're probably going to get is one of ridicule, one of I don't know if making fun of you or, or condemning what you believe. But keep in mind what 1 Peter 3 says here. And remember, when the children of Israel in the Old Testament was wanting a king for the first time, Samuel was all upset about it. What did God say to Samuel? God said, Samuel, don't worry. They haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. If you point somebody to scriptures in the Bible and they start complaining about that, they're rejecting God at that point. That is the Bible speaking and not us. So let's move on to the next one.
Argument number seven. Cornelius and his house. I've heard this argument a lot. It says, all right, you guys claim you can't find an example anywhere in the Bible of somebody that's obtained their salvation without baptism. I have an example for you. Cornelius and his household. They received the Holy Spirit. They began to speak in tongues, and then they were baptized. Obviously, they had been saved before the baptism took place. So there's your example. Okay, let's look at this. Turn with me over to Acts chapter 10. Let's read about Cornelius and his family. And again, this, like most of these, could be an entire sermon by itself, but we're going to go quickly through some of this. Acts chapter 10, let's begin reading in verse 1. It says, There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. All right, so we have an introduction to Cornelius here. By reading this, every indication is he is... He's a man who's trying to do what is being taught by the apostles. He is a Gentile. He is not a Jew. But yet he's still trying to follow the teachings of God. He is a righteous. He's a devout man. Flip on over now to verse 44. And in these passages that we skip, this is where Peter now has gone and some of his men with him, that they've gone to Cornelius' household to preach to him with the instruction of God. And they have doubts in their mind about doing this because they're going to a Gentile household, which is not what they've done to this point. Let's begin reading in verse 44. It says, While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. And those of the, circumcis the circumcision who believed were astonished. That would be Peter and the men that were with him. As many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. That would be Cornelius and his family. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then they asked him to stay a few days. Okay, so I will agree with you. Cornelius and his household, according to the scriptures, they did receive the Holy Spirit first, and then baptism followed that. But arguing that they were saved when they had the Holy Spirit, again, has an underlying assumption to this argument. The fact that you have the Holy Spirit means that you're saved. Does the Bible teach that? Let's go look at it. Go ahead and be turning over to John chapter 11. We'll get to that in just a second. You know, I would say that most times in the Bible, it probably is true. You have the Holy Spirit, there's a good chance you're in a saved condition. But we're told in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, it says, For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Keep that in mind as we turn over to John here. Peter is now saying that when you prophesy... It is not coming from you. It is because you have the Holy Spirit and God is working through you, through the Holy Spirit, that is why you prophesy. Now let's turn over to John chapter 11. And we're going to begin reading in verse 49. And just a little bit of background about what's going on right here is Lazarus has just been raised from the dead. You now have this group of the spiritual leaders have got together and they're now plotting how they're going to start start to kill Jesus. They want to put Jesus to death. Let's begin reading in verse 49. And one of them, Caiaphas, 
Keep in mind, this is the same Caiaphas that was one of the central figures in the betrayal and the crucifixion of Jesus. It's the same man. And one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and not that the whole nation should perish. Now this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. It says here in John that Caiaphas prophesied. Well, we just read back in 2 Peter that it says, when you prophesy, it's not coming from you. It's because the Holy Spirit is in you, allowing you to prophesy. So based on that, the only conclusion you can come to here is Caiaphas had the Holy Spirit in him. I have never heard anyone argue that Caiaphas was in a safe condition while he was in the process of betraying and crucifying Jesus. So if you're going to argue that Cornelius and his household was in a saved state when they had the Holy Spirit on them and they began speaking in tongues, you at the same time have to argue that Caiaphas, who crucified Jesus and had him wrongfully tried, was also in a saved state. I don't know of anybody who would make that argument. Again, when you go back to the Bible on these and you look at it, the Scriptures with an unbiased approach, these arguments simply don't hold up. And so I would say to you that Cornelius and his, his family, just because they had the Holy Spirit put on them, they were not in a safe condition yet. God put the Holy Spirit on people so that God's, God's work, the things He wanted done, could be seen. Peter and the man with him, they were doubting at that point that God was really wanting them to go and to preach to the Gentiles because they had been sent to the Jews up to that point. They needed something to show them that God was serious about this and He did want this to go to the Gentiles. God put the Holy Spirit on Cornelius and his family, which allowed them to speak in tongues. That was proof enough that Peter and the men with him needed to say, all right, who's going to forbid these men now from being baptized? That's the reason Cornelius and his family had the Holy Spirit put on them. It was not because they were in a saved condition. Let's move on. Next argument, argument number eight. What about the thief on the cross? This is probably the most popular argument you've ever heard against the necessity of baptism for salvation. What about the thief on the cross? He wasn't baptized. And I, I would say you're probably right. Well, I mean, he was, he was hanging on a cross. At that moment when he was talking to Jesus, he didn't come down and go get baptized and get back up on the cross. There are things that we do know about the thief on the cross. There's things we don't know about the thief on the cross. Let's see what we do know about him. Turn with me over to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23, and we're going to begin reading verse 39. This right here is all that we know about the thief on the cross. This is all that the Bible records. Beginning in verse 39, it says, Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God? seeing you are under the same condemnation. And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. That's all we know about the thief on the cross. There are some things, well, there's a lot of things we don't know about the thief on the cross. 
how do I know he didn't used to be a disciple of Jesus that was following him around and worshiping him and then made a bad mistake that resulted in his crucifixion? I don't know that. Maybe he had been in a saved condition at one point and got repentance at that point or, or repented and, and Jesus forgave him. I don't know. Now, it's probably not wise to use that argument back to somebody because they're going to say to you, prove that. You can't. It's not recorded in the Bible. So how do we answer this? How do we respond to somebody? You know, we're told in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 16 and 17, that in order for a testament to come into place, there has to be the death of the testator. Jesus had not died at that point. So I think it's a valid argument to say the thief on the cross was not under the new law. He was not under the same rules, quote-unquote, that we are under today. But here's one somewhat flaw with that argument. I know a lot of people in the church, and I've used this argument a lot of times, is the thief on the cross was under the old law. But we have no indication he followed up with what the old law said to do either. And so if, if I was on the other end giving that argument and somebody told me, he said, well, yeah, the thief on the cross was under the old law, my response was going to be, prove to me he did what the old law said to do. There is no proof of either one of those. So how do you answer this question? What about the thief on the cross? Here's how I think you need to answer it. Turn over to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2, and this is a very powerful passage. What's going on in Mark chapter 2 at the beginning of it is this is a story we've all heard that you have a man that's paralyzed. He's wanting to get to Jesus. Jesus is in, in the area. He's preaching to people. He's inside a house. The house is full. They can't get in the door. So his friends take him up on the roof. They remove a section of the roof, and they begin to lower him down through the roof so that he can get to Jesus. Jesus then says in Mark chapter 2, verse 5, he said, Son, your sins are forgiven you. Sounds very similar to what he told the thief on the cross. At that point, though, Jesus was accused of blasphemy. The reason for that is, is for people who are around hearing this, if they didn't believe that Jesus was God, that he was a son of God, in essence, Jesus forgave somebody's sins, which was putting himself in the place of God. That would be blasphemy if he was not God. But listen to the way that Jesus responded to their accusation. Mark chapter 2, let's begin reading verse 8. It says, But immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, Why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, Arise, take up your bed and walk? Now listen to this. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. Jesus just said, so that you will know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Jesus has the power to forgive the sins of whoever he wanted to while he was on earth. There was no other criteria put around that. He forgave the sins of this paralytic. We have no indication that the paralyzed man did anything. Now back in verse 5, it says, When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. Whose faith? Was it the faith of his friends that he saw, and so he forgave the sins of the paralyzed man? I don't know. We have no indication he ever asked to have his sins forgiven. You know, but those aren't the only two examples in, in the four Gospels of somebody's sins being forgiven prior to Jesus' death. There's another one. 
there is a sinful woman that came and washed the feet of Jesus. And we're told that Jesus forgave her of her sins. Why is she not used as the example of what to do today? And all we have to do is we have to go wash somebody's feet and our sins will be forgiven. Why just point to the thief on the cross? There's two other people in the New Testament that their sins were forgiven without baptism. I think it all goes back to Mark chapter 2 here. Jesus said, the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. All three of those individuals were in a very different situation than we are today. We cannot have a face-to-face -face conversation with Jesus with him here on this earth with us. If we could, then I would say, yeah, if you can get in that and Jesus forgives you your sins, then maybe your baptism is not necessary. But that doesn't exist today. The simple fact is we cannot use any of those three, including the thief on the cross, as an example for what we have to do today because we were not in a situation that they were in. It's impossible for us to be in that situation. So again, when you go back and you look at the Bible and you look at what it really says, these arguments do not hold up. All right. One last argument and then we'll, we'll conclude the lesson. We're going to go back to Acts chapter 2, verse 38. And I've heard this from a lot of people when I've talked to them about baptism in the past. They say, look, you guys point to Acts chapter 2, verse 38, and you kind of proclaim it. That's, that's the verse that you use to prove everything that baptism is necessary for the remission of your sins. But what they'll say is, if you go back to the original Greek language, when you say baptism for the remission of sins, you and the Church of Christ interpret that to be baptism unto the remission of sins, such as the remission of sins comes after the baptism. But if you go back to the original Greek, it really means because of, which would read baptism because of the remission of sins, implying the remission of sins came first. Is that true? Does that word for in the original Greek mean because of? Let's go look at it. Turn over to Acts chapter 2, verse 38. And again, we're going to read this real quick. We've already read it once this morning. And I know we've all heard it a lot, but it's important. Let, let's look at what it really says. It says, Then Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The word for. In the Greek language, that is the word eis, E-I-S. That word in the Greek language is a preposition, just as the word for is a preposition in the English language today. It's used to connect something after it to something before it. And so in this, it is connecting baptism to remission of sins. So there's no way you can argue that those two aren't related somehow. But the question is, is how are they related? Does remission of sins come first, which would be because of, or does remission of sins come after, which would be unto? You know, I've, I guess I've, I'm guilty of the fact that I've heard this argument so much, I've maybe been convinced of it a little bit, that maybe a possible definition of ice, or the word for in the Greek language, is because of. And you have to go back to other passages to see in context, which does it really mean? And so when I was putting this sermon together, I was going to Greek dictionaries, Greek lexicons, trying to find what the interpretations of the Greek word ice is. The Greek word ice is not interpreted because of. I couldn't find it anywhere. And so when people tell us, well, you just have to go back to the original language to really understand what Acts 2.38 is saying, I did. It does not mean because of. That is something that people are just saying. They have no proof to back that up. Now, I did find in some places, and even there's a, um, and 
the Greek new or the, excuse me the King James Greek uh, New Testament dictionary or lexicon that I found online. It went through and listed all the possible words that the word ice could be interpreted into. Then it puts a footnote down at the bottom, and it says that, or it doesn't say because of, but it implies that it has to also mean because of, so that Acts 2.38 says that remission of sins comes before baptism. It put a footnote in there. That is a pure biased statement. They said that, it, well, it has to mean that because otherwise it would be saying that remission of sins comes after baptism. But if you go look at the actual words that it's interpreted to, here they are. The word ice is used 1,774 times in the New Testament, or in the King James. The words that it is interpreted into, into, to, unto, for, in, toward, and among. That's it. You stick any one of those words in Acts 2.38 in the place of the word for, you get the exact same result, that baptism leads to the remission of sins. So if somebody ever presents to you the argument that, well, Acts 2.38, you have to go back to the original language and then you would really understand that remission of sins comes first, challenge them to show it to you. It doesn't. That is completely something that has been made up for the sake of argument. One last thing that we'll point out and then we'll conclude the lesson. Matthew chapter 26 and verse 28. And again, this is still going back to something that compared Acts 2.38 to. Matthew 26 and verse 28, this is Jesus is instituting the Lord's Supper. He says, For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. It's the exact same wording as Acts 2.38 in the English language. You know what? It's also the exact same wording in the Greek language. When you go back to the Greek, Matthew 26.28 and Acts 2.38 are the exact same wording in the Greek. So if you're going to say that Acts 2.38 has to mean because of, meaning remission of sins came before the baptism, you have to carry that same interpretation over to Matthew 26.28 when Jesus said, this is my blood that was shed for the remission of sins. So are you now implying that, the, that Jesus shed his blood because sins had already been forgiven? That makes no sense. Nobody would argue that. So again, when you have these arguments come to you, don't brush them aside. Simply go back and look at the Bible and show it to the person. It says this is what the Bible is really saying. The fact of the matter is baptism is necessary for salvation. There's, there's no way around that. That's exactly what the Bible says. So as I said as we got started, there's all kinds of arguments that are out there. There's no way possible we could get through all of them this morning. I mean, I've gone through nine of them and we've used up a lot of time already. But the fact is none of them have a leg to stand on when you go back to the scriptures and you look at it with an unbiased approach. You know, if you got the bulletin this morning, you may notice the article that's in the bulletin. It's the same article that ran in the bulletin last week. When Adam wrote that, I, I saw him last week. I was like, ah, oh, I wish we'd have held that till this week because that had been perfect for the sermon. And so I actually requested we run it again. If you haven't read it, get the bulletin, read that article. It does a very good job explaining exactly what you have to do to obtain your salvation. Gives several scriptural references with it. I mean, the Bible tells us you have to hear the gospel. Romans 10, 14, you have to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. John 20, verse 31, you must repent of the past sins that you have in your life. Luke 13, verse 3, you then must confess that Jesus is the Christ. Romans 10, 9 through 10, 
and then you must be baptized in order to come in contact with that saving blood of Christ, Acts 22.16, then continue to live your life faithfully from that point forward, 2 Peter 2.20. If you haven't done that in your life, what are you waiting on? Why not do what the Bible has told us that we have to do? Maybe you have done that. Maybe you are a child of God. But the Bible also teaches that we can fall away if we fall back into the world of sin. Come back to Christ. Put Christ back first in your life. Put Him on in baptism if you have not done that. So if either of these be your need, we pray let us be your church family to stand with you. We ask that you come as we stand and as we sing.